I began to look for a CEO position and I interviewed in five different states for different positions. And I think as a woman, particularly a woman of color, I identify as Asian, I needed to be flexible on location, size, and pay in order to land a position. And I will say for me, what was a differentiating factor is I spent that time that I was looking for the CEO position, because it takes some time, defining my values. And so my values include creativity, courage, service, justice, and family. And I had those front and center when I went out looking for that first CEO job. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Wendy Jo Toyama, CEO of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, or AAHPM, and AAHPM is a client of Association Management Center. Wendy, welcome to the show. Hi, Joanna. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now. Gosh, me too. Hey, so tell us about AAHPM. Yeah, so AAHPM, we're really dedicated to ensuring that patients and families who face serious illness can get the care we need. So we do that a couple of different ways. We make sure we provide enhanced learning. We cultivate knowledge and innovation around the topic. We strengthen the workforce and we really advocate on public policy issues to achieve that vision. So we're made up of interprofessional members. We have more than 5,500 members and they can be physicians, nurses, social workers, chaplains, PAs, pharmacists, researchers, about 10% of our membership is interdisciplinary. So, Wendy, what does it mean to be 10% interdisciplinary? So 10% of our members are nurses, pharmacists, physician assistants, researchers, social workers. The rest are physicians. So, Joanna, you know, it's interesting. When I decided to be a CEO, I knew I wanted to work with interdisciplinary medical associations. And I think if anybody has had a family member who's faced a complex illness, you know how frustrating it can be to get the care you need. And I think that model of interdisciplinary care where a team comes together and provides care is the model for the future that we need to be looking at. So it was important to me to work with an organization that valued the entire team. So being interdisciplinary as a medical association means that we have the physicians along with the interdisciplinary team members who work together when you have a loved one who is facing palliative care and hospice. Wendy, that totally makes sense that a team would be focusing on end-of-life care. 
Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what is palliative medicine? Yeah, so palliative care really is focusing on improving the patient's quality of life through managing pain and other distressing symptoms that come with serious illness. Palliative care is provided along with other medical treatments. Hospice care is for patients at the last years of their life. So hospice care can be provided in a person's home, in a hospice center, in a hospital, in a long-term care facility, wherever the patient is residing. You're saying that hospice and palliative medicine, I guess it sounds like they go together and they can be provided in multiple settings, including a patient's home as well as in the hospital. Yes. So physicians who actually provide hospice care are boarded through various boards, up to 10 different boards. So it could be family medicine, emergency medicine, you get the idea. So they usually come into hospice because they are interested in walking with the patient and family as they're facing serious illness and end of life. Wendy, before we get into the things that AAHPM is doing to thrive, and thriving you are, let's talk about your journey. How did you get to become CEO of the Academy? You know, I think everybody's CEO journey is a little bit different. For me, I had been a senior leader at a large medical association, and actually I had a peer say, hey, when are you going to become an exec director? And I'm like, oh, me? I hadn't really thought of it before. And so it took some time to think about if that's what I wanted to do. I had been a marketing professional and had really seen myself as advancing in that arena, maybe up to like a chief marketing officer or something. But I realized I loved working with volunteer leaders and supporting them, helping them achieve the mission of the organization. And I also, I just find working in strategy really lights me up. And so I realized those are two key aspects of being a CEO. So I began to look for a CEO position and I interviewed in five different states for different positions. And I think as a woman, particularly a woman of color, I identify as Asian, I needed to be flexible on location, size, and pay in order to land a position. And I will say for me, what was a differentiating factor is I spent that time that I was looking for the CEO position because it takes some time defining my values. And so my values include creativity, courage, service, justice, and family. And I had those front and center when I went out looking for that first CEO job. And so my last organization, which was my first CEO job, was also an interdisciplinary association. It was the American Cleft Palate and Cranial Facial Association. So an organization like ours that works with families, right? I think both organizations do courageous work and being a CEO, you need to be a servant leader. So there were a lot of things that really aligned with my values. When I landed at the academy, I was looking for an opportunity to grow. And again, for me, the organization aligned with my values. I was also, this would have been in 2019. I was also looking for an organization that was committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've been working on diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout my professional career, beginning at my corporate position at Tribune in the 90s. So it was very important to me to find an organization that was committed to that, and the Academy was. I'm kind of a governance wonk, Ugh. so I love your intro. Another one. Yeah, I love your intro. And you know, I had known the previous CEO and was aware that this organization has an exceptional team, an exceptional board, and really excels in the governance arena. And that was important to me. Wendy, how do you know that an organization 
has values that align with yours. Because you interview and you meet with the board, but you don't really live with them for a while. No, you don't. So how do you figure that out? There are a couple of things. One, I always look at an organization's websites. Many organizations will post their values and they'll be right there front and center. If they don't, that's something to think about, right? Ah, okay. So I think that's one simple way. But I also always, this is my interview tip for anyone, I always try to talk to a member of the organization to prepare for my interview. When you do that, you can ask questions that get a little bit at the culture of the organization. So when did you do that when you were going through the process with AAHPM? Mm -hmm, I did. I actually ended up talking to a social worker who was a member, which was interesting. My college roommate had done hospice work at one point in her career. And I reached out to her and she gave me a colleague who was a member and a social worker. So, Well, I love this. Making your values explicit, making it front and center during the interview process. How do you demonstrate and live the values with your staff? That's a great question. And it's one of the things I love about being CEO. If you've ever worked at an organization and you say, oh, God, I really don't like the culture. You know, if you're the one heading it up, then that's your own fault, right? Yes. So being the CEO, you do have an opportunity to set that culture. And I think for us, it was interesting. I started during the pandemic and then shortly thereafter was the upheaval with George Floyd's murder and the racial reckoning that followed. And I think some of the things we did were very visible. We made space to come together and mourn. We made space to come together and process what was happening. We also make sure that we are aligning our resources with those values. So you can't say you're committed to DEI and then not have any person who is assigned that duty or any volunteer body who's doing that work or any budget line for that. I think the other thing we learned around that time is everybody on our team was very committed to it. And so we were committed to it. We were including it in everything we do. But if you're not specific about what that means and looks like, you run the risk of it being not included in anything you do. And so really defining what does that expressed value look like for us and then telling people that this is what it looks like for us and here's what we're going to do and here's how we're going to measure it as opposed to this value is important and we all embrace it. You have to be very specific. I love how you're really incorporating the values into your leadership journey. And you hope that the values were there before you came and that they'll last even after you're gone. Yes, of course. That's part of hiring and that's part of creating the institutional structure. Yes. Is there a particular value that is being tested right now? I feel like Many organizations are really thinking about what does DEI mean for them so that it's not performative. There's some McKinsey research that shows that some organizations make great headway in the last five or six years, but many are resting on their laurels. So I think for us, making sure that we are delivering on what was an early effort and making sure we're continuing to advance that, that's one area of challenge. I think another area is creativity. Associations have a great opportunity right now to reinvent what they are and what they look like and everything from how we staff to what meetings look like. And I think that for associations, particularly ones that excel and have been around a long time, it's sometimes hard to change. So I think that's a place where some associations are just doing a great job and taking advantage of this pandemic opportunity. 
and others just want to go back to the way that it was before. And we're never going back to the before times. We're never going back. I mean, I think any organization that things were unchanged or that we can go back, turn the clock back. I mean, ah, I know. Hey, Wendy, let's turn to AHPM and the things that you're doing to thrive. How's membership? Membership's great. We just had our two highest membership months ever. And we actually excelled in the pandemic. We did not see a dip. Wow. So you're doing some things right. Tell us about the new and different things you're doing or the things that you're just doing really well. You know, on the membership front, our profession is highly relational, a high emotional intelligence. They work collaboratively. The association reflects that. We have a lot of communities. So I think during the pandemic, we were able to lean into our online communities and still have a good sense of connectedness to the association and to one another through the pandemic. So I think that is a big reason why we continue to maintain membership during the pandemic. What do the communities look like? Are they online? Are they in person? Are they both? I think before the pandemic, they were both. I think during the pandemic, they were all online. We have special interest groups, we have forums, we have communities, they're all a little different. So we have an online community platform like many associations do now. And we just had our first in-person meeting in four years and it was wonderful. Many of the special interest groups met in person finally, yay, which was really exciting. It was very exciting to see the energy around the table from the groups, which if we hadn't been maintaining that energy virtually wouldn't have showed up the same. Yeah. So you say that there are four things that you're focused on as CEO. Maybe you can tell us about them. Yeah. So I would say there are four innovations that we're doing that are a little bit different, maybe than other associations. We're interdisciplinary. I can talk a little bit about that. We're a 501c3, but really have been establishing a culture of giving or philanthropy. We're an early entrant on DEI work. So we're looking at taking that to the next level. And we're also creating a data analytics function within the organization. So where do you want me to start? Wow. Well, let's start at the beginning. So when you talk about being interdisciplinary, so you've got 90% physician members and 10% interdisciplinary members. Yeah. What's that looking like and where do you want to be? Yeah. So what I really love is the diversity, equity, and inclusion work we did. I think we were forerunner on this, really identified the need to do more with our interdisciplinary members. And so probably about five years ago, after doing listening conversations, conducting climate surveys with our members, really kind of understanding on the DEI front what our members were looking for, we created voice and vote for interdisciplinary members. Wow. Mm -hmm. So what that means is we expanded our board to position. And we added two interdisciplinary team members to the board. What's interesting is those members started like, I think, November of 2019. So, wow. Initially, it was hard because this was a new endeavor. And I think every board member felt like it wasn't real in the pandemic, all the virtual board meetings. So I think it must have been really hard to be sort of this new interdisciplinary member on the board at the same time, too. 
But yes, yeah, so we've included Voice and Boat, and we also had a task force, an integration task force that then looked across the association to say, now that we've done this, what other things do we need to be doing and changing? So it ran the gamut from creating different awards or expanding eligibility for awards, expanding the eligibility for our fellows. So now we can have folks who are nurses, researchers, social workers become fellows of the academy. You do not have to be a physician to be a fellow of the academy. So just really looking across the whole organization, it's relatively new. I think that there's more we can do there, but it's exciting to see that. Man, that's super exciting. Was this a tough discussion to have with the physician members? Yeah, so it was. I wasn't there at the time, but I have read the survey results, and it was. And I think in the end, we are still an organization that represents the physicians who do hospice, that specialty. We are the home for that. That won't go away. I don't think that means we can't also be the home for the interdisciplinary team that cares for these patients, right? But it was, I believe it was tough. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. You know, I've worked with other organizations that have changed their categories of membership to include interdisciplinary members. And in some cases, it was a big fight. And in some cases, the interdisciplinary members were really angry. Yeah. Because they felt like nurses, for example, with one group I was working with, were really cranky because they said, you know, we provide the majority of the care and yet we can't be members and we don't have a vote. Yeah. So for us, it's new. I think we can get better at asking ourselves, how can we ensure we're inclusive? How can we ensure it's a place everyone feels they belong equally? How can we make sure we're delivering value? The other thing is we don't want to displace the hospice, uh, HPNA, Hospice Palliative Care Nurses Association. Ah. They exist. They have a role. And you know, our hope is that our membership complements theirs and nurses may choose to belong to one or the other or both. We're not trying to compete with them, right? Yeah. So we have to be thoughtful about that as well. I think when you come to our meeting, for example, we're trying to have topics that include the interdisciplinary team and speak to the interdisciplinary team among our topics. And speaking of inclusion, DEI is one of your areas of innovation. So talk to us about the different facets of DEI in the organization? Because it sounds like there's a leadership, there's membership, yeah. there's the patient care, there's health equity issues. I mean, it's kind of the profession, the field is rife with DEI issues. Right. Yeah. So when we started our effort, we really identified an opportunity to create five new affinity groups. So we did that about five years ago, and we created a Latinx, a Black Families, Patients and Professionals group, Asian and South Asian group, LGBTQ+, and I think it was over 65. What was interesting about the groups we created is there was some thought and consideration. They were not limited to people who identified that way. They were open to folks who may care for patients that identify that way or want to be an ally. So they are not closed groups, which was a choice that came up through our members. So that was one of the early things we did and I will say we have a diversity and inclusion committee. We created a diversity and inclusion plan. We had 50% of a person dedicated to the diversity and inclusion work. We had done a survey. But when I got here, the efforts had kind of plateaued, I think, for a little bit. And then George Floyd was murdered, and we really needed to look at how can we take our work to the next level. We need to look at how do we measure success? 
Do we want to include social justice in the work we're doing? Wow. You know, what does it look like, right? And so we decided it was time again to do a survey. So we allocated funds to survey the membership on the topic. We also had our dedication from a staff side had dropped from 50 to 25%. So we reallocated staffing to push that back up to 50%. And we now have a manager of diversity and member engagement. And so we are working now on on our DEI strategic plan 2.0. One of the things I was really proud of was how visible our commitment to this was at our meeting. So let me talk about that for a minute. Please. We realized that our meeting overlapped with Ramadan. And so we actually had reception, a DEI reception that coincided with the time to break fast. And so we made sure we had halal and appropriate food for the breaking of the fast. We also made sure we had a prayer room for those who needed to pray during Ramadan. In addition to that, we've always had a quiet space and a labyrinth. We were also in Canada and they have such a commitment up there to the First Nations. So we did land acknowledgement. We did that from the podium. I was really proud to read that. We also had signage for that. We had a DEI reception. There were just many, many ways that DEI was really visible at our meeting. And that was really proud of that. What's been the reaction from the membership? Really good. Amazing. Really good. Yeah. I mean, we don't have the surveys back yet, but on site, people were excited. The reception was well attended. I think people noticed it. Hey, speaking of surveys and data, you've got another area of innovation, and that's data analytics. And I really want to hear about this because you're setting up a whole new practice area within the organization. We are. It was interesting. You know, we're, I think, what would be considered a mid to large size association. I've been at a small one, well, which is also mid size, right? And I think we all know that you have a membership database and maybe you have a system for your communities and maybe you have a donor database. An LMS. An LMS, right. But they don't necessarily all talk together. And when I joined the organization, it became clear each functional area wanted more data to help make decisions. So data can help us find efficiencies. It can lower our expenses. It can validate trends. It can help us communicate more effectively can drive innovation. And we just kept asking questions where having more data would have been helpful. And so what we decided to do was we actually reallocated our staffing so that we could create a data analytics manager position. Wow. So we created a data analytics manager position and we're working to bring in a data warehouse so that we can bring all the data together. And this will really help us. And if you think about boards and think about the last three years, Boards have had to make high stakes decisions, whether to cancel in-person meetings. How do you reduce expenses in a way that won't have the membership suffer? Where do you make those program cuts? How do you identify alternative approaches? And, you know, now decisions around where to locate the meetings. I mean, these are really tough decisions and having data can really help the board and help inform that decision making. So... We're really excited. We're just at the beginning of the effort. Wow, that sounds amazing. So you're creating a culture that is curious and asking questions about what data do we need to make better decisions? And then you're probably developing a set of practices around using the data to make decisions. Well, the other thing we want to do in addition to that is dashboard. So 
I um, work hard to create two-way communication with the board. I want to make sure they're updated. But I would love to be able to do it through a dashboard as opposed to, I mean, people are so busy and they're so drowning in email. So I'm, I'm looking for ways that we can quickly convey key performance indicators yeah. or uh, accountability measures or whatever you want to call them to the board, but also to the staff team. I want to make sure we're looking at those and we're holding ourselves accountable and, and asking what does success look like? How do we measure it? And then doing that, measuring it. Yeah, yeah. We are going to have to have you back, you know, in the next year so you can report on your data analytics practice. I know, for example, I had one client that was looking to see if the location of the meeting changed the composition of attendees. Oh, yeah. And conventional wisdom said that it did. But when they actually looked at the data and mapped the attendance, it did not. Yeah. So then that gave them freedom to really locate the meetings in different places. Mm -hmm. In the meetings industry, there's so much money spent around location and trying to identify the location. And we also found at another organization that the location was not what the meeting was about. The meeting was about the learning and the content and the connections and it could be held in a number of places and be successful. Right. Hey, so your fourth area is establishing a culture of giving. Yeah. Well, I think for me, you know, I'm going to say when I look to be a CEO or actually, frankly, when I look for any job in the nonprofit arena, the first thing I do is I look at the 990 and I look at the revenue streams. Sure. And I want to see a really nice, pretty pie that has a lot of different slices. And I think a lot of organizations during the pandemic, especially, really focused on diversifying revenue streams. And so one of the revenue streams that some 501c3 associations aren't really taking advantage of are development and raising money. And so at my last organization and this one, both of them, we've really been working on creating a culture of philanthropy and educating our members on why it's important to support your professional association. So I think our, our meeting maybe contributes about 26% of the revenue membership, about 22%. Don't quote me on the numbers. You know, and then we have landed some large grants. But have we been raising funds? And the decision to give from ASAE showed us that association members are as likely to give to their own association as to another nonprofit. The biggest reason they don't give? They're not asked. They're not asked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the a level of members who give to their association is about 7.2% is average, which I think is low. Right. As a former fundraiser, I think that's low. <laughs> Particularly in passion-driven organizations, you know, that are centered around purpose. So our giving was not at that level. We had less than 2% of our members giving. So again, we created a position for a development manager. We hadn't had one. We've been using a consultant and are really focusing on creating a culture of giving. And, you know, it's really storytelling, right? It's helping people understand the great work that our members are doing and the things that we could do differently or more if we had more funds to do them. And so it's been really fun. The, the guy I came in is a storyteller by nature. And so we're starting to tell those stories and steward our donors and do all those things to express gratitude for people who support our mission. 
So you're telling other C3s that you don't just have to rely on dues and events and publication sales, right? that you can also solicit gifts to support the work that you're doing. Yes, you can. And I would say if you're going to do that, get a development professional to help you. Absolutely. Don't tap the mother who runs the PTA bake sale because that is what you will get then, which is great for the PTA, but not what you want at your association. There's a credential out there. Absolutely. Yep. And there are people who do this work and you need to get someone in who knows how to do this work to help you do it well and right and to really honor the donors and create that culture. And we're getting there. We At our recent assembly, we really tried to weave that into the meeting as well. And I was really pleased with that. And in addition to getting a few pledges on site, a large donation, one of our employees said, I think I'm going to give. Oh, wow. Which is good. So we we haven't yet rolled out a campaign to our employees. We want to wait for the right time, but we're seeing the employee donor number creep up too, which is nice. Amazing. So four kind of centers of innovation, AAHPM. Before we go, Wendy, you've got a special role at ASAE devoted to DEI. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I had been a former chair of the DNI committee. Currently, I sit on the research committee for the ASAE Research Foundation and have been looking at some of the DEI work there. And what I'm probably most proud of recently has been being a part of an AAPI advisory group. And so there's a group of us within the association space who are looking at representation of Asians within associations. And we are wildly underrepresented, actually. Is that because our moms want us to be all doctors and lawyers? I don't know why (laughs) it is. We've had robust conversation. We think there is something about the fact that, you know, none of us except for maybe the Engel brothers who founded AMC, said, I'm going into association management. Right, right. So you kind of find your way in the space to begin with. But I do think that potentially nonprofits are not seen as the kinds of career paths maybe that are hoped for for their children. We don't know. We don't have data. But what I will say is that I was looking to do this at the forum with when Michelle Mason was there. And I actually opened up my LinkedIn. I had more than a thousand contacts. I was trying to like look for people and less than 1% of my contacts were Asian in the association space. There were only two other CEOs that I knew of who were Asian and none were women. Nobody looked like me. Wow. And there is a bamboo ceiling. There is a gap at middle management and Asians are the group that has the largest gap in leadership. And so it's really something I'm passionate about is after the um, spa shootings in Atlanta. And I decided I really needed to lean in and use my voice. And so I think there are a number of us who are doing that now and wanting to ensure that we think about how we can create a space for Asian and Pacific Islander professionals to feel like they belong and thrive and grow and move all the way up to a CEO leadership position. You know, as I'm interviewing CEOs, it strikes me that Each one of them brings something different to the organization, and they bring different superpowers. So what's yours? Oh, this is such a tough question. You know, when I think about superpowers, I think we have different superpowers at different times because times need different things. And so I think for me, the superpower that I've really leaned into during the pandemic is pausing. Ah. Pausing and helping my team 
to pause. And what I mean by that is I think that it's good to say, why are we doing this? Does this make sense? Is there another way to do this? And I think at associations, we have so many high executors, right? They get in there, they get the job done, check, check, check. And they don't necessarily think, oh, I should pause, you know, and giving people permission to pause and really think about what they're doing. And if there's a better or different way, I think was really important during the pandemic. So I think for now, I would talk about the superpower of pausing. Amazing. Well said. Wendy, let's work together. And when this episode is published, let's put together some great resources in the show notes. Okay about the work that you're doing, your centers of innovation, as well as this initiative at ASAE. Will do. Wendy, I want to thank you so much for spending so much time with me today, for sharing your journey, and for sharing the amazing things that AHPM is doing. I hope you'll come back. Oh, thank you. I would love to chat with you again, Joanna. Been a joy. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye.